welcome to Harmony Talk, a podcast about dreamers and doers, dreamers who fulfilled their dreams. How did they get there? Not always easy. What was the moment they knew there was no turning back? This podcast is brought to you by A.M. Skyer, a third-generation family insurance business started in 1920. And our guest today is Edwin Ed Williams, a retired professor who early in his career turned his twin passions for travel and learning into a successful business, TravelLearn. Ed personally escorted more than 200 adult learners on learning vacations to Kenya, East Africa, and more than 700 deans or directors of continuing education on tour to China, Egypt, Morocco, the Galapagos Islands, Greece, and East Africa. Ed continues to promote learning vacations in part through his own effervescent lectures about where he's been and what he's learned. For many years, Ed was a sought-after speaker on China, which he traveled to at least 17 times, during which time he received a very special honor on the 2500th, I think I have that right, birthday of Confucius. More about that in a few minutes. Welcome, Ed. Thank you, Lisa. It's a pleasure being here. (laughs) Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. Let's just set the stage for a moment. What is the difference between a tourist and a travel learner? Well, a travel learner is someone who, when they're looking at a particular site or having an experience, want to understand a little more about what they're seeing or experiencing. And so Traveler is all about providing them with that kind of understanding and understanding in depth about the places and the people that they're visiting. So do you actually provide or recommend education about the place before you go? Well, one of the things we do with uh, prospective travelers is we send them a reading list to help them prepare for the trip. I often use with my students and with travelers a quote from St. Augustine, who said that the world is a book and those who do not travel read only one page. But we do encourage people to do some reading before they have the firsthand experience. When did you first get the travel bug? I guess you could say when I began collecting stamps back when I was about nine or 10 years of age, uh, my Cub Scout master was a stamp collector and had a stamp club, which I joined. And I was fortunate to have an uncle who was a stamp collector and gave me a a world stamp book and uh, a large selection of foreign stamps. And you wanted to travel to those places. I wanted to travel to those places. I remember very vividly stamps on the Belgian Congo, which seemed exotic to a 10-year-old. And in fact, it inspired me to start reading National Geographic magazines. And I continued the stamp collecting up until uh, I took a stamp collection merit badge in pursuit of uh, the Eagle Scout badge way back when. Did you ever get to the Belgian Congo? I never got to the Belgian Congo. Traveled extensively in North and East Africa, but really never got to West Africa. Well, I know you went to Duke and then Columbia. You earned degrees in international studies and education. And then you end up somehow in Kenya. How did that happen? Actually, I went to Kenya after graduating from Duke. When the recommendation of a professor of mine, I took the course in African politics. And so I spent two years on the Teachers for East Africa program under the auspices of the Agency for International Development 
and Columbia University. I didn't attend Columbia University until I returned from teaching in Kenya with a Ford Foundation scholarship. I attended both Teachers College and the School of International Affairs. So Kenya obviously influenced your choice of going to graduate school. Without question. In fact, I was one of the first graduates of the School of International Affairs at Columbia University because I was thinking about going into the Foreign Service, but then decided to go into college teaching rather than that. You were in Kenya, you said, I believe it was back in the 60s, a very turbulent time for civil rights in the United States. Did that in any way, shape, or form influence your trip before or after to Kenya? No, quite honestly, Kenya was not that turbulent. They had just achieved independence, and Jomo Kenyatta, the uh, leader of Kenya, did a fantastic job, quite honestly, settling the country in and striking a good balance between the English, former colonists, the Indian merchants, and the various African tribes. The tribal differences were the biggest issue, but uh, once again, he was pretty good at keeping things quite stable. Which is amazing considering how many other African countries have not had that experience. Well, after Kenyatta died, Kenya then ran into its problems. And when I was doing travel programs to Kenya later on, sometimes they were interrupted by that instability. You started or co-founded a company called Travel Learn which wasn't really, the concept wasn't exactly new. There was Elder Hostel, for example, but you offered something a little bit different. How did it differ from, say, programs like Elder Hostel? Well, Elder Hostel began in the early 70s. They used college dormitory accommodations and provided wonderful learning experiences. They actually didn't begin doing programs abroad until right around the time that Traveler came into existence. And once again, They went to England and Scandinavia and used college accommodations. Travelearn, on the other hand, I believe strongly in providing experiences primarily in non-Western destinations like Kenya, like Morocco, like Egypt, and certainly like China, which became our most popular destination. And we also used upscale accommodations because older adults, travelers, we found when traveling overseas, wanted their creature comforts. We were sometimes referred to as an upscale elder hostel. So that's how you kind of balance the trip to the developing world with the sort of upscale creature comforts. Exactly. How did you, your interest turn to China, which is very far from Africa? Well, the interest came after uh, President Nixon recognized China. You have to remember that America seemed to deny the existence of a country with one-fifth of the world's population until 1972. And so uh, I began integrating teaching about China into a course I taught called The Emergence of the Modern World. When I created Travelearn and was trying to recruit divisions of continuing education, we built this nationwide network of divisions of continuing education of colleges and community colleges, and primarily learning institutes, renaissance centers, institutes for lifelong learning. And that's how we built our nationwide network. One of the ways I promoted Travelearn was to give a lecture 
called China, the Sleeping Giant Wakes. And I gave that at colleges and learning centers all over the country. And uh, one of uh, the questions I asked at the outset of that lecture was, uh, when and who do you think said, when China wakes, the world will quake? And of course, very few people knew that that was Napoleon saying that in the early 1800s. Oh, my gosh. Well, it took China a while, but it certainly did wake up, didn't it? <laughs> it certainly did. But I think the success of China then, as it was certainly awakening primarily economically, was due in part to uh, its past. And so when I gave lectures, that China lecture on China, I dwelled a fair amount of time on uh, Confucius. And since I was talking to older adult learners, I uh, always pointed out that Confucius lived to the ripe old age of 74, which was, uh, you know, a little less than the average American or Chinese citizen at this time, but quite long in terms of his time, in, you know, the 5th, 6th century BC. And what's interesting, and again, I did this because I was speaking to adult learners, I pointed out that Confucius, when asked, what accounted for his longevity, his long life. He said the following, the master Kung is a man driven so much passion for learning that in his enthusiasm, he often forgets to eat and seems completely unaware that he is growing old. And that really struck a chord with the audiences that I spoke to. Confucius, of course, is famous for a lot of sayings, including, I think, Wherever your heart goes, go with it or something like that. Take me to China, if you don't mind, like your first trip and then how you ended up at Confucius's 2500th birthday, a bit of a tongue twister there. Sure. I took my first trip to China with a small wholesaler in New York, and they were taking primarily uh, Chinese Americans to China. This was in the early 1980s, my first trip. And then I took several more trips. And I emphasize the need to get to Chufu, the birthplace of Confucius. And I did that for two reasons. One, to introduce people to Confucius, to make the point about Confucius' influence because of his emphasis on education and learning to the success of an emerging modern China. But I also took people to Chufu because Chufu is a farmland. It's a farm community. And uh, after all, China at that time and still today is predominantly agrarian. So we arranged for people-to-people -people experiences. We visited the Confucian mansions, which are second only in terms of scale to the Forbidden City in Beijing. So they're quite magnificent. There's also the world's largest cemetery there. So I'm bringing large numbers of people to Chufu. Very few wholesalers in those days did that. And so I was invited to attend the 2500th anniversary of the birth of Confucius by the mayor of Chufu. And I also had the honor of uh, participating in ceremonies as a representative of the United States and I walked up to the uh, Confucian temple with the 73rd descendant of Confucius and then was interviewed on television. By the way, 
That was also the 50th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China that month. So there was a lot of celebration going on in uh, Beijing and Shanghai at that time. So it sounds like you took a lot of your learners kind of off the beaten path. Absolutely. Well, again, with all of our programs, we knew that most people were first-time travelers to those places. So we obviously had them experience what most people would expect to experience. When you go to China, you want to see the Great Wall of China. You want to see the Forbidden City. But then we also took them to places that typically they would not get to as a way of giving them a, a genuine understanding of the people and the culture. I emphasize that understanding. Uh, Mark Twain once said that uh, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, all foes to real understanding. And I would add the kind of understanding, both domestic and international, sorely needed in our troubling times. I know that in Confucius' birthplace on the 2500th anniversary of his birth, you were honored as an ambassador of international and cultural understanding. How did you work with the people in China? What was the give and take between you and the people you were escorting? Did they also feel like they were welcome and that their lives were being enriched? Oh, absolutely. No, most travelers to China were struck by how the people of China were just so fascinated by these Western travelers. They were genuinely curious. By the way, Confucius once said, it is a delight to welcome travelers from afar. So I would often say, you know, he was one of the world's first great advocates of lifelong learning, but he was also probably one of the first advocates of international education. So no, the people were quite welcome, quite curious. And as we were curious to us, I mean, our our guides, you know, spoke the language, and so they acted as interpreters, and our people were able to ask questions of the peoples that they visited in these various countries. By the way, we were very careful to select guides who were not name, place, date people, but guides who truly understood their past and their present were quite comfortable talking about not only the past, the present. They were great storytellers. They had the ability to relate some of their own life. How did you find them? Well, my son and I would go over there. If we were investigating a new country, we would try to find medium-sized wholesale or land operators, and uh, we would spend four or five days spending time with selected guides. We emphasized the kind of guides we wanted and we made those selections, and our travelers would evaluate them, and we would act accordingly. Did you make any lifelong friends of your guides? Oh, absolutely. In fact, three of our guides, one from Morocco, one from Egypt, and one from Kenya, visited us up here in the Pocono Mountains in Holy, and uh, my wife was a second-grade school teacher. They would visit her classes, and some of her students, when they were Later on in their 20s, 30s, bump into my wife, they would almost always talk about Mohammed Shada from Egypt. <laughs> and how about you on the other, the flip side? Did you go to their homes as well? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I took my family 
an extended family on a trip to Kenya, and we visited. We spent two days at the home of uh, Lois Kabui, his parents, and my father was on that trip, and I have photographs of my dad walking out on the fields with his father, a peasant farmer. You continued to lecture, do you not, on lifelong learning in China? Yeah, that's correct. When I bought a home in South Carolina 21 years ago, one of the first things I did and one of the attractions of where I moved was it was just adjacent to the University of South Carolina in Beaufort. And so I would give lectures on China. I gave lectures on globalization. And then I always had an interest in the writings of Pat Conroy. So I actually gave courses on Pat Conroy and his writing. And uh, I'm now a I've been a docent at the Pat Conroy Literary Center for five years. Wow. Let's just talk for a second again about China. So today, there's a bit of, I don't want to call it xenophobia, but there's a bit of fear about China, particularly related to COVID. Do you feel that that's going to be a detriment to travel and travel learning? Oh, absolutely. Without question, COVID's had a devastating impact on travel. And I think you know, the issues that we have with China have probably dampened the interest in travel there. But we went out of business in 2008. But you continue to, to travel yourself and to lecture. Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, we're going to Portugal in a few months, and that'll bring me uh, <laughs> full cycle around. That is, uh, you know, Prince Henry the Navigator and uh, Vasco da Gama. Actually, when I was in Kenya, I went down to Fort Jesus in Mombasa, a fort that was built by the Portuguese in the 1600s, and they were excavating at that time from the sea Chinese porcelains. So uh, I'm very excited. Chinese porcelain in Mombasa? Yeah. The Chinese, what a lot of people don't know is that the Chinese really mastered the Indian Ocean even before the Portuguese came there, about 50 years before the Portuguese came there. And so there were Chinese wares. Uh, in fact, one of the Chinese navigators took a, uh, a giraffe back to the emperor of China in the early 1400s as a gift. <laughs> I wonder how that giraffe did back there in China. <laughs> You certainly do have a lot of fun stories. I, one of the most fun stories I think you've ever told is about going into the cockpit of a Boeing 747. Yeah. As I said, I learned a lot about travel when I ran the study abroad programs and was director of international studies at, at the college at which I taught. And so I had a good relationship with British Airways because we sent many, many students and adults to England and Scandinavia through the college. And so uh, I was able through British Airways to go up into the cockpit of a 747. And I guess it was 71, 72. And I spent about a half hour up there. So I had a chance to look at the pyramids of Giza and to Lake Turkana in the northern part of Kenya, where I had visited when I taught way up there in the north corner of Kenya. So I saw both of them from the air. From the cockpit. Absolutely. But I also had a chance to fly in a small plane in the Rift Valley. If anybody has seen the movie Out of Africa, there's this incredible flight over the Great Rift Valley, and I had the good fortune to be able to do that myself. If you had any advice for somebody who was thinking about traveling, what would it be? Well, I would tell them, life is short. The world is wide. 
And as the Pan-American slogan used to say, sometime has a way of becoming never. So if you have an inclination to travel, especially if you're older, do it now. Don't wait. It certainly has enriched your life, hasn't it? I had the good fortune to have a professor from a large university approach Traveler when we were just beginning and asked to do a program to Kenya with us. And he was so pleased with what we did that he did over 20 trips to our various destinations, sometimes multiple trips to those destinations. That was really helpful in terms of building our company. When he retired, I was asked to speak at his retirement. And I said that he was the Prince of Travelers, which was the title of an article from the National Geographic about Ibn Batatu, the great traveler from Morocco in the 14th century, who traveled over 75,000 miles over a period of 30 years and as far afield as China, just after Marco Polo. So he was very important, and he inspired me to continue my travels as well. Thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate it, and I hope there are more trips in your future as well. Well, thank you, Lisa. It's been a delight talking with you about two of my favorite subjects, travel and education. Absolutely. Thank you, Ed. This podcast has been brought to you by A.M. Skyer, a third-generation family insurance business started in 1920. I'm Lisa Champeau. Talk to you next time.